Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Um, and today, yet again today, we are going to go a little bit outside our lane. We're going to, instead of covering the jihadist issues like we normally do, um, we are going to take a little break and talk about uh, the war in Ukraine. This is something, again, I've been covering quite a bit. Um, and today I have a special, very special guest um, and someone who I consider my to be my internet friend. Um, he may disagree about this, but... Um, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to introduce Sal. He's a retired U.S. Navy commander. Um, he founded the fantastic blog Commander Salamander back in 2003. That's the same year I started blogging, um, long before I got into this professionally. Um, Sal was among the trailblazers in, in what used to be known as the military blog community. Um, that began, they saw also began in the early 2000s. Uh, he's the co-host of the National Security Podcast, Midrats. Uh, it is a must-listen, um, talking all types of interesting issues, military affairs. Midrats, it's now in its 13th year. Um, Sal definitely was ahead of the curve in, in the podcast arena. I'm quite jealous. I had to be taken to this dragon, uh, kicking and screaming. Um, so I, I really should have followed the Sal's lead. Welcome to Generation Jihad, Sal. Well, Bill, uh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the invitation, and it's great to come join you. We talk so much, uh, having you as a guest over at MidRats, and you know, it's amazing that uh, it's been hasn't even been six months since the fall of Afghanistan. But uh, you would have thought it was uh, six decades ago. The uh, the reality and the truth of today has definitely changed. It really has, Sal. You know, and then and, and that leads into the first question I wanted to ask you. I mean, did you ever think you'd see a war of this magnitude in Europe in your lifetime? And so soon, as you just noted, after Afghanistan, I thought I'd at least have a pause here before the next thing cranked up. And I, I don't think it's an accident. So no, and I, I think you, you've got a lot of company there. People just didn't want to believe this could happen. I remember back in January, after the Russians announced that they were doing a big exercise in Belarusia that was due to uh, end on the 20th of February, people were worried about it because the Russians had been building up on the borders of Ukraine since last spring. And I said, well, you know, watch the Ides of February. If we come to 20th of February and the Russians start to to go back to garrison, then everything's fine. If not, watch a little closer. And uh, lo and behold, the, the Russians did what they wanted to do. And it's one of those things that and we've had a, a guest on MedRats, you know, very similar to how we had you on um, Dr. Dmitry Gorenberg for years. And we joked when we first had him on that nobody else wants to talk about Russia. So we will even before the, the the Crimean War of 2014, and people will say, well, "What do you think? You know, Putin is thinking." And, and I don't know. Uh, Russia is not a Western nation. It's not an Asian nation. It's Russian, and their decisions are are really focused around, you know, Putin and his very small circle, if he even has a circle. And uh, you can, I can't predict what Putin is thinking or what his desires and his motivations are, but I can look at the capabilities. And 
it became pretty clear when the when the exercise did not end on the 20th of February that you had to look at the map, you had to look where they're positioned, and you know, forget about what you think they might do, think about what they could do. And that's where I, you know, here we are in the uh going in the second week of March. And I think that's what everybody needs to do is uh, first of all, I mean, you got to give credit to the Ukrainians doing, a, doing an incredible public relations and information operations and a little bit of psyops. Um, but you've got to be careful what your sources are. Uh, look at the map and look at capabilities, uh, because uh, if, if there's somebody in the, in the Western press who is trying to convince you that they know what's going on in Putin's head or what his real motivations are, to be gracious, I'd say they are overestimating their ability. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, Sal, and one that it, um, I've had a very difficult time um, communicating to people. Everyone thinks they know what is inside his head. Is he crazy? Is he? Um, uh, did he think he was going to take? Uh, is he upset that he didn't take Ukraine uh, or the capital Kiev in two days and things of that nature? Everyone thinks they understand. What is inside his mind and what he's plotting? You know, he didn't realize that the U.S. and, and the West would launch significant sanctions. How do we know this? And, and it's just very frustrating. Um, you know, it's, it, I think we uh, have a tendency, uh, when I say we, the, the, the West in general has a tendency to view everything as in, through our own eyes. This is how we would act if we were Putin. This is how I would have responded to this. This is how I would have hoped to win a... I mean, do we really believe he thought he was going to win a war in two days? If so, why did that massive invasion that's taking place on multiple fronts get launched at the same time? So there's a... I think I, it's a really important point that you make there. We don't... We can't pretend to, to know or understand his motivations. And any any attempt to to do this really is, I, in my mind, just a lot of projecting. I agree. And you, you can almost see a manifestation of, of some of the things that we've talked about over the years. We were talking about our frustrations with um, how Afghanistan was being reported, led, and you know planned for, is, again, we have another data point. And, and how we solve this, I really don't know, but I think we need to recognize it before we're able to address it. But there's a dysfunction in the Brussels to Washington, D.C. national security nomenclatura is they have a very narrow wedge of life experience, educational backgrounds, and they're self-selecting and who they let uh, get issued a union card. And you're seeing that again here. And I think the, the, the discussions of uh, the no-fly zones amongst some people, uh, it's like they have never looked at what no-fly zones are and when they've been used and why they've been able to use. And to be frank, uh, some of these are very, for lack of a better phrase, important, smart people that decision makers listen to, and it absolutely frightens me. Uh, the fact that uh, these people are getting ideas into the ears of people who are professional politicians, who are every day, they've got a million different directions they have to go and they rely on their advisors and their staff and people are policy. 
And uh, some of these people and their policy ideas are uh, at best dysfunctional, at worst, very dangerous. So I hope we have a, a, a better diversity of influencers uh, for those people that have access and control over levers of power, because this is a very sensitive moment we're in. Sal, I couldn't agree more. You know, you, you had noted, you know, first we have to recognize this problem exists. That's probably my greatest frustration, particularly with Afghanistan, that we didn't take a look. There was no effort. And it was just deflection that we heard from military leaders, from political leaders, um, no self-criticism of how they could have gotten this so wrong after all of these years on multiple levels, which I'm not going to rehash here. All of our listeners and your listeners as well, I'm certain are aware, well aware of what those problems were from, you know, from within the political sphere, within the diplomatic sphere and the military sphere and the intelligence sphere. Um, but I think you might have gotten a pick at, uh, peek at my uh, at my script here because the, I did want to touch on next on the um, issue of talk about the no fly zone and there's been so I, that's the perfect segue thank you very much um, so that yet there's been a lot of talk about this um, establishing a what they call a quote limited no fly zone end quote um, and as you noted this is frightening. Now, one of the things that really bothered me about this, there was what, 26 or 27 individuals who signed this. Mostly they were former ambassadors, former deputy secretary of defense, or some type of deputy of, you know, secretary of state in this area, things of that nature. But among that list was two generals. One was the former Supreme Allied Commander for Europe. So if there was a war in Europe, by led by uh, a, a war organized, you know, that was that NATO was involved with, with a Russian invasion. This is the guy who would have been in command. And then the other was the former commander of the U.S. Army of Europe. Um, they came, These two came out in support of this so-called limited no-fly zone. And I say so-called because there's nothing limited about enforcing a no-fly zone. Um, tell us about... You know, you, you've already told us about what you think of the idea of a no-fly zone. Very clear that you think it's madness. So can you talk to the to our listeners uh, and tell us what is required to enforce a no-fly zone? Is it just as simple as telling airplanes you can't fly, or is it a little more detailed than that? Is it not so? Yeah, it is. And, you know, we have lots of evidence of where this has taken before, but I would encourage everybody, if they haven't already, Look at a map. Um, Ukraine, I think, is 90% of the size of the state of Texas. So that, I mean, it's not a small country. It's not, you know, it's not Serbia or Syria. That's what the size of New Jersey or something like that. But um, when, when you establish a no-fly zone, and again, you have to define limited. That's like saying, uh, you know, a limited artillery barrage because we're not going to use you know, anything larger than 155 millimeters. Yeah, you know, still, that's still a pretty big artillery barrage. But um, what you do with a no-fly zone is you put out a notice and it's a pretty, to use social, some some hipster term, it's a very alpha move where basically you're telling the world over this piece of land, we will fly our airplanes and you will not. If you fly, we will tell you to turn around. If you don't, we will shoot you down. It is, and um, I saw an interview recently with with Corey Shakey, who's, who's excellent on this on this subject. 
And she's exactly right. It is a declaration of war. And uh, Russia is not Serbia. Russia is not what was left of Iraq. Russia was not some um, rump Syrian state that we can, you know, take the eastern part of and squat over it. Uh, Russia is, if not a first-rate power, uh, it is a second-rate power. It's not to be fooled with. It has a history. It has a culture. Uh, and it's not playing around. And if you establish a no-fly zone, you're in essence telling Russia, Russia, if you fly over where your troops are in contact on the ground, we will shoot you down. That's a declaration of war. You have, regardless of what how you want to parse words and play high school debate team or rehash your model UN speech from the, after your junior year in high school, uh, you congratulations, you're now in a war. And the Russians rightfully would see it as such, as we would. Uh, the United States um, and some of our allies have a history of doing military operations in other countries for our own self-interest. And uh, just from a completely objective point of view, that's what the Russians are doing, not saying it's right, not saying it's wrong. Well, I will say it's wrong, but you know, you need to look at it that way. And uh, people who are asking for a no-fly zone, I'm glad you brought up that memo because this is a nonpartisan issue. There were people on that list that are Democrat operatives. There are those on that list that are Republican operatives. There are those that um, are have worked for both parties or nonpartisan. And I, I also am glad that you mentioned the, the two four stars on there. They know better. They know this. They know. You're exactly, Sal. These guys, I, I can almost excuse the others for not understanding the technicalities of what's required, but those two know better. And and my take was, you know, as I kind of tongue-in-cheek wrote as a title when I when I wrote on this, the blob wants a war. If you put your if you put your pen to paper down here, you're asking for a war. And if people want a war with NATO, that's great. Just come out and say it. Because when you read this document, anybody that has spent any time in the defense and national security arena knows exactly what they're talking about. You know, go back to what I mentioned before. The dangerous part is you have rightfully, correctly, and as a blessing, we and our allies are constitutional republics or, you know, uh, parliamentary monarchies, however you want to describe it. We have professional politicians, most of which have no military background. They rely on, quote, the smartest people in the room, unquote, to advise them and give them advice. And uh, they don't know the nuances. They see something like, again, you know, going back to this memo, talking about giving the polls A-10s. I'm sorry. No, no Polish air, not Polish, excuse me, Ukraine, uh, giving the Ukrainians A-10s. I'm sorry, there's there's no Ukrainians that know how to fly an A-10, much less there are Ukrainian maintainers that know how to maintain a single A-10, not squadrons of which. And you can't create that overnight. That's a um, uh, talking to a, an individual I know who's actually done 
uh, foreign national sales and training. That's a two to five year process just to be able to stand up an initial squadron in a new airplane. And let's not even get into the maintenance and resupply aspect of it, right? Yeah, yeah. especially the, those are those are old planes and uh, they're refurbished motors, et cetera, and so forth. So um, we have politicians who rely on these self-described experts to give advice. And uh, that's, again, going back to what I said before, I don't think it's an exaggeration for people not just to be concerned, but you can say that you're you're frightened because you have a right to be. Because if we get into war with Russia, um, we either as an alliance or as an individual nation or a small group of nations, I, I remind people, study your history. Alliances are not the Ten Commandments for the faithful. Uh, wars have broken out throughout history that uh, like how many... How many coalitions did it take to finally defeat Napoleon, six or seven? Um, they change on a regular basis. And so anyway, if the United States got into a war with Russia, uh, congratulations. You don't even have a pan-European war. You have a world war uh, because that brings in North America. That brings in the North Pacific. Uh, and war is a dark room. When you when you walk into it and you close the door behind you, you have no idea what's in that room. And once you start confronting those things, you may not know how to get out of that room. So you've got to be careful. And it was just uh, an incredibly reckless uh, memo for those people uh, that have that come from such um, distinguished backgrounds and experience to put their names to. Yeah, I could not agree with that statement more. And, you know, you mentioned war is a dark room. What happens? To, where does China come down on this? Does it decide to initiate an invasion of Taiwan when if it sees the U.S. is distracted or the, you know, there's so many aspects to this. It's you you are literally opening Pandora's box. We don't know what's inside that thing and we don't want to take a look in there. I want to point out um, a couple of quick things on the no fly zone. And in order to enforce a no fly zone. You need air superiority. And in order to have air superiority, you need to do things like hit radar radars that are used for the missile surface air missile launchers, anti-aircraft guns that are embedded within the Russian troops, because you're not going to the US military will not put its planes up in the air without having that because they don't want their planes shot down. Some of those radars and launchers aren't inside Ukraine. There was a at least I've read about one Ukrainian aircraft that was shot down from a missile launched either within inside of Belarus or with in Russia. That's the the S-400 missile system that they're talking about. This thing has a several hundred mile range. So we're talking about launching airstrikes again. You know, and again, if you were serious about enforcing a no fly zone, you would have to take these actions. It's not just even air to air combat that you would be looking at. You would have to. Again, this just increases the risk of direct confrontation with the Russians. If that's your intent, I mean, you know, like you said, say it. But, um, you know, let's not pretend that enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine is anything like doing so in Iraq or doing so in Serbia, as you noted, or or in in, uh, eastern Syria, northeastern Syria. This is this is a whole different ball game, and this is you know I do not want to open that box. I don't want to see what's inside of it. Yeah, it, it's varsity football. It's full pads contact sport. It's not 
It's not flag football. It's not, you know, helmets and shoulder pads only scrimmage on a Thursday. It's strap on the pads, tape up your ankles, go type of war. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the fact that a lot of these uh, air defense are inside of Russia proper, and they are. And to do a no-fly zone, your combat air patrols are not going to be down at 1,000 feet. They're going to be 30,000 feet and up. And as anybody who has ever held a round object knows, the, the higher you go, the longer your range. And uh, it, you, know, you have to put the shoe on the other foot. You know, what would we do? Uh, we, you know, we talked about it in Afghanistan. We learned it the hard way in the Vietnam War. We learned it the hard way in the Korean War. Um, it's very tempting, especially when your people are being killed, to reach into those safe havens. And if you look at things, there's a great map projection of Europe looking east from Russia, which makes Western Europe look like what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a ragged old peninsula full of a bunch of uh, rival ethno states all the way up through the Iberian Peninsula. But um, that's right in their backyard. That's in their neighborhood. And uh, how would we react to those types of safe havens? So uh, there's no such thing as a limited no-fly zone. The Russians get a vote. And when we start killing Russians, which you would do to enforce a no-fly zone, you know, don't be surprised when they decide that uh, you're playing a different tune and they're going to dance appropriately. It's, it's just a horrible idea at this stage of the game. Uh, I could not agree more, Sal. Um, I'm Bill Raggio. This is Generation Jihad. Our special guest today is Sal, or Camp Commander Salamander. Um, he's a former uh, commander in the U.S. Navy, a retired commander in the U.S. Navy, and uh, runs the excellent uh, blog, Commander Salamander. And you should also follow him on Twitter at, at CDR Salamander. Uh, give Sal a read. He's well worth it. Sal, um, the next topic, let's talk about the, the common narrative by the Pentagon, the Ukrainian military, and in the press that this narrative, the, the Russian military is stalled. It's losing. It's stuck in the mud of the Ukraine. And yet, as you noted in a recent article on your excellent Substack page, um, the maps don't lie. Um, and what we see over time is that the Russians are advancing in some areas. It's a grinding advance in others, particularly in the South. They're having far more success. They're close to encircling the Ukrainians on multiple, in areas on multiple fronts and would envelop those forces. How is it possible that the Russians can have, have tactical issues and, and still be achieving strategic success? Assuming you agree with what I just laid out there. I do. I think the old, the old cliche that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Um, If you held a gun to my head, my two cents of what happened is they, they had had a very good plan set up by their um, general staff. Unfortunately, um, as operational planners do in certain political environments, uh, by the time your your courses of action selection go up and your planning assumptions are defined, if you are trying to make the plan fit your commander's intent and direction and guidance in an artificial way, once you make contact, things change real fast. 
uh, even if you do a good job, they can change real fast. And the the Russian military does not have um, an argument that's op- a, a, a command climate that's open for much debate. So I think they were overly optimistic. And we saw that where you mentioned earlier about they were going to try to do a decapitation strike and take Kiev in two days. They sent their air mobile uh, forces to take the Andropov airport. Uh, they were they were pushed off because they didn't they underestimated the the Ukrainians' ability to to get the work done, so to speak. And but they're adjusting, and it's kind of like when I learned how to snow ski when I was twenty five. I I lacked style and technique because I I overestimated my ability to stay vertical. But eventually, I made up for it simply out of um, stubbornness, ego, and brute physical strength. And I think that's why it's important to look at the map because, yes, you've got supply convoys getting isolated, lost, and and picked off by the plucky Ukrainian territorial guards and the babushkas. Um, But that for every one you take out are the Russians getting two or three through. And how many more do they have behind them? Um, that's that's one of our known unknowns. We don't know how taffed out the Russians are for their ability to flow more troops in. However, that is their historical paradigm. When things get hard, they throw more men and material in the breach, and they have that advantage over the Ukrainians. So I think, though, that um, while the Russians are doing that, in one way, as long as the Ukrainians can maintain uh, leadership continuity and supply of people and material, time is on the Ukrainian side because uh, the Russians cannot do this forever, but they can do this for a while. And I would I would defer to the people behind the cipher door that have uh, the expert opinion on um, how much the Russians can draw on. But as ugly as it looks. When you look at the map, it's it's within half a standard deviation, I think, of what their professional planners may not have been what they prevented, what they presented to um, the chief of the general staff, but in their back office planners, it's probably within a standard deviation of what they thought what they would see. But I would also assume that they, as well as everybody else, has, has underestimated the Ukrainian grit. Uh, and the, uh, and I think you could do hours of this anyway. The, to use a polite term, the economies of force that the U.S. and her allies used to help train the Ukrainians after the the first Russo-Ukrainian War of 2014 has uh, paid dividends. I think the British get a lot of credit for this as well. In hindsight, it'd been great if we could have done more, but you know, hindsight's worthless because we are where we are now. So I think it's a, that that combination of things, the the climate in the Russian general staff going up to their president, kind of shaping a, the operational plan towards the expectation of the principal vice, their best military vice. And secondly, everybody underestimated the Ukrainian grit. I couldn't agree more. I think if the Russians had one failure here is they didn't think the Ukrainians would, would fight so hard. Um, okay. 
it's very frustrating. I get called a Putin apologist, the Putin lover, a Putin, a Russia lover. I'm paid by the, the FSB and Russia today and everything else. And it's just for attempting to understand what's happening. Very frustrating. I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the information war coming up in a question or two. Um, and I do want to note something that you had said it, uh, you made me smile um, when you talked about skiing. I also learned how to ski in my 20s. You know, then I had kids. It was, it was hit or miss. It was okay. I could get down a hill. Then I had kids. And, you know, you, you know, when you have kids, you have young kids, you stop doing some things. Started doing it when we were able to get them on skis. I blew my knee out in 2012. Thought I'd never ski. A freak accident where my bindings didn't come off. And, um, hit the ice at the bottom of the hill at the last run of the day. And it uh, just, you know, blew my MCL, of course. Right. And, um, I thought I'd never ski again. I got back on them and I skied terrified and it took maybe a year and I finally got to be able to ski. And it's the same reason I just was not going to give it up. I had to get better, but I, it was a long path. And, um, I, I had to do it though. I was able to ski springs and I was able to ski blues and I never thought I'd be able to ski blacks and then went out to a ski trip to big sky, Montana, highly recommended. If you guys get anyone get to get, get out there and took a lesson and it was like, there I go. I could ski blacks now. And now I do it. We have a place up at the mountains in Northeastern Pennsylvania. I go like every weekend. Sometimes I spend weeks up there, work the ski the morning, work the days, um, and now I can ski and it's because, it's because of what you just said. And it's, it's, if you have the stubbornness, the determination, the drive, you can overcome a lot of your shortcomings. And I'm not here to pump up the Russians, but this is the analogy that you made there works. It's what I see. They're just, they, I didn't do it overnight. I didn't get better at skiing because I turned around one day and said, it's because I just, I forced myself to do it, but uh, enough about me and my skiing and love of skiing. Sal, you got to come up skiing with me. Uh, if you ever uh, make it up to the Northeast, you, you open invite for you and your family. So yeah, no, and all, all seriousness in this, whenever you want to come, just, you just ping me. Um, uh, you, you mentioned the uh, Ukrainian uh, strategy there a little bit, you know, and from what I'm seeing, looking at the maps, um, I'm seeing hit and run. It looks like they're working to defend the cities, to hold back the Russian advances where they can. But by doing so, what I'm seeing is that they're risking being enveloped in um, in some key provinces. Would you Would you agree with that? What do you What do you see as being the Ukrainian strategy? Is it sort of a fighting retreat and and, and hold the line where they can? I'm curious, you as a as a military professional, what you think about that? It's funny if if. If you weren't Ukrainian and this wasn't your blood and soil, you might say something like, you know, well, let's clean up our lines, kind of like what, the, uh, what the, the British did in the First World War that kind of spooked the Germans. Why did they leave their trenches? Because they're cleaning up their lines. Uh, maybe retreat. Uh, things got really bad. Retreat to the uh, Dnieper River. Uh, but we're not Ukrainians. It's not our blood and soil. It looks like they are going to fight for every square foot that they can. They are going, if the Russians want the urban centers, they're going to have to come take them Russian style. Unfortunately, that means uh, and Ukraine is a very poor country. And there were parts of Kiev and 
Carthia and especially Odessa that were, you know, were charming uh, for considering the per capita income in those places. But uh, they've been, they were destroying World War II. And th- that's a tough part of the world with a tough history. Uh, you know, it was 100 years ago that the Ukrainians and the Poles and two or three Russian armies were fighting all over that land. Um, they'll rebuild it, uh, but they're going to fight for every bit of it. They're going to make the Russians bleed because I think rightfully their thought is our best hope is the small, very brave protest you've seen in St. Petersburg, which is probably the most, quote, Western, unquote, part of Russia, which, by the way, I've, I've spent a few days in St. Petersburg. It sure does seem Western to me, but it's all relative. Um, and a couple of Moscow, maybe that will make things go. Uh, if you take the low estimate and the high estimate of Russian casualties so far, they lost more people than we lost in 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those people are going to know that word's going to get home. Um, that if the Ukrainians take the point of view that the Vietnamese take, took towards us in Vietnam, where if we kill enough of their kids, eventually they're going to want to quit. Maybe that's what the Ukrainians are doing. Um, it's you know not what I would do objectively, but this is a subjective war. This is um, a people's war, and um, they will fight for every every square inch. And um, most of the uh, United States, we have trouble understanding that because definitely in living memory. Um, but uh, you know, I've some people have heard me joke, but it's actually true. You know, my family's been in North America for 400 years, and we've we've never lived north of the Mason Dixon. And my family comes from Mississippi for um, over 200 years, and I can go to my ancestral hometown, and to this day, we're all related to each other. But we can walk through and we can show, well, this building wasn't burned. This one was. The first battle lines were here. Uh, the battle lines were there. You know, we talk about, you know, well, this is where the, the uh, battalion from Iowa came down. And we had the Minnesotans come up this road from the Vicksburg campaign. So, you know, m- memories, memories are what they are. But for the Ukrainians, it is on the edge of living memory from, from World War II. Uh, and they have developed since the fall of the Soviet Union uh, even more of a national identity than they had uh, before. And it pre-existed. Like a, if, if anybody's interested, they should look at um, the Ukrainian uh, part of what is generally called the Russian Civil War after the fall of the Tsar. Uh, the interaction of the Ukrainians and the Poles and the white Russians and red Russians. It's a very... A little understood story, but uh, there is a nation there, and uh, it looks like that's what they're going to do. The Russians are not going to be viewed as liberators uh, because what little residual feelings there were about Ukrainians and Russians being one people, uh, I think that's that's done. I think that's gone. I think that ship has sailed as well. Um, we're you know it is, look and is. Assuming the Russians say, let's say, take half the country, do whatever, you know, I, I, I kind of have it in my mind that what I think is happening here is they're looking to the Russians themselves or looking to sever the country in half. 
occupy or establish a friendly regime in the ha- the eastern eastern and central half and probably leave some type of rump state ukrainian state that is at least pliable de- demilitarized neutral neutered however you want to describe it some combination of those you know th- we'll see right that's that's sort of my thought on how this is trending at the moment if these envelopments happen I think I think I think you know the, what the Russians are looking at. I've heard you know some people have used the old Cold War term of Finlandization. No, I don't think that's what they're doing. I think maybe the Russian strategy was to do exactly what you talked about. Uh, you know, do it quick, do it fast, but almost a Belarusianization. They want. I think the Russians wanted to create in Ukraine what they have in Belarusia. Yes, which yeah. is technically an independent nation, but it's really you know. What a vassal state, a vassal state, a sat rap, you know, something that's not just inside their sphere of of influence is almost a commonwealth um, uh, domain. And uh, I don't think that's doable for them now. And this is when you and it's interesting, the uh, I think it was today or yesterday, President Zelensky. I did an interview at the German newspaper built and he mentioned he's open to talks with the Russians. And I, I think that's true because, you know, he knows the Russians better than anybody. Um, is this, when will the Russians reach the point that they would want to have real negotiations that would give the Ukrainians some type of sovereignty? Um, they're, you know, from an international standpoint, you know, we're talking about norms and standards and the quote, liberal international order, unquote, uh, which has nothing to do with the American definition of liberal, but that's that's kind of the shorthand people use. Um, it, it, that will involve changing of borders, um, and I, it, I I could with a straight face argue um, of letting the Russians keep at least Crimea, maybe a little bit more, just to get peace. But when you look at the long term. Um, you know, how many decades, how many generations have we lived in Europe right now where we said we weren't going to change borders again? Now, we kind of fibbed in the uh, former Yugoslavia and with Kosovo, which the Russians rightfully will throw right in our face. Um, but that might be something the Ukrainians, if they fight hard enough and make it painful for the Russians enough, can get the Russians to negotiate something that Maybe doesn't make everybody happy, but also doesn't make either side lose too much face at the end of the day. But I may be too op- too optimistic there. I don't put it. You know that is certainly within my realm of possibility, Sal. I, I, it's it's possible that this is too painful for the Russians. I mean, we're going to see. You know, the, on the Ukrainian side, are they willing if they are going to wage resistance? And I think that's a better term here because they're, they're fighting against the occupier here as opposed to an insurgency. Correct. Some people are saying yeah. some people are saying an insurgency, and that's wrong. This is resistance. There's a people should grab yep. a dictionary and exactly. make sure they use it. Right and if terms. they're to do that, we know the Russians, at least in the past, have been willing to deal with that. Now, on a far smaller scale, we can look back to the Caucasus dealing with the. Um, the nationalist insurgency. I think the Russian fight against the Islamist insurgency, the national insurgency in the 90s and early 2000s, the Islamist insurgency led by the Islamic Caucus Emirates, which was, you know, a branch of Al Qaeda. Um, the Russians had a more nuanced way of fighting that because they had 
you know, they had Chechen backers, right? You had Kotarov and his cadre did the dirty work of the Russians. So, but we had to, we watched what the Russians did in Syria. Are they willing to do this in Ukraine? If they are, are the Ukrainian people, are they willing to do what's needed to do to wage a successful resistance? And that is requires sacrifice as well. I'm not saying the Ukrainians aren't willing to do it. I'm just saying it's not as easy a decision to make when you have to target your own infrastructure, when you have to risk your homes being burned down, when you might have to risk Russian reprisals of massive artillery barrages on, you know, neighborhoods with, within cities and things that, you know, there's a lot going on here that if, if they're going to wage a resistance, they're not dealing with U.S. style occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan, the happy occupation, right, where we just want to pay people to make do things and try to influence the Russians have their own version of, well, I would say before this, you know, counterinsurgency, but their own version of counter resistance that we're going to see, right? Like we're going to, these, I can't answer these questions. Um, and I know you, you don't profess to be able to answer them too. We're, we're going to find out here at some point, depending on how this all plays out. I, th- I think, I think what will be interesting to see because a lot of the Russian playbook naturally flows from the Soviet experience. And they do have a lot of experience of of taking and holding and controlling territory. But a lot of what they did is, regardless of nationality or ethnicity, the Soviets could always draw on communists, which was a transnational philosophy. So whether you're talking about Czechs, Hungarians, Poles, Germans, Ukrainians, uh, you name it, uh, Turkmen, you're always going to have a group of the intelligentsia who were communists. You could come in and go, you know, Professor Professor Rodlick, um, congratulations, you're now the president. Um, and he's a good communist. And he goes, well, great, let's cre- uh, we'll work with you to create a worker's paradise, whatever. Break, break. We're not in that world. The Russians can't do that. You know, how if they do wind up occupying all our significant parts of Ukraine, you know, we talked about resistance. Um, there is a long history of what happens to when you have a, a an ethnic or nationalist-based resistance, that it's hard to find local co- collaborators because those local collaborators get a note on Tuesday saying, stop it. And then on Thursday, they and their family are killed. Uh, it, it could get real ugly real fast. And that also is within living memory in those cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Um, Sal, last issue. Um, we'll talk about the the other war that's being waged here, the war for the narrative. And this is largely being fought on social media. Um, where, you know, what the press is doing, I think it's a very lopsided coverage and uh, it's a whole different topic. But uh, we, you and I, we are, we're veterans of the internet. Uh, going on 20, almost 20 years now. Uh, and uh, I, I got to tell you, I don't think I've seen anything quite like this. Um, you know, expressing an opinion other than Ukraine is winning, it makes you a Putin lover and the, the Russia lover and, you know, a paid operative of the of the FSB and Russia Today and any other Russian source. And have you ever seen anything quite like this? And, and what are the implications of this, this blinkered mindset we're cheering for the home team, essentially, which is what's happening here, is, is the only acceptable position. It's almost this, this bifurcation. Um, it's almost as if taking 
the domestic politics, which the last half decade, but it really predates really a last decade and a half or so, have just gotten so incredibly toxic and applying that to the international stage. And um, if you are not perfectly aligned with one set of agenda items and everybody can you know outline their five or 10 items, then you are right. Obviously, you're either 100% with us or you're 100% against us. You can't have an objective appraisal. I think a lot of it is because it's um, there are a lot of emotionally based people. And there are also a lot of people who not only are they emotionally based, they don't have either the intellectual curiosity or the background knowledge to be able to look at facts and have the facts flavor and temper their emotions. And as all people who are heavily in emotion, if you, if you tell them something that becomes uncomfortable, then it's not that uncomfort is not their fault because they don't know or they're not willing to examine. It's your fault for making them uncomfortable. And so I think uh, some of those domestic political habits that we've seen in a variety of areas are manifesting themselves here. Um, I've been uh, not surprised, but disappointed. You know, there's, there's the usual suspects that you would see that would come out to do that. But um, there are also certain um, organizations who are mostly engaged in domestic politics who um, are waiting for their domestic political appointments to say something that might not be perfect or might be nuanced or might be kind of like what you and I are doing here, just trying to figure out what the facts are. And they'll pull that quote and then they will do exactly what you what you'll do and they'll they'll attack them in that regard because we've already spent the last five years or so where you know the the, the <laughs> how can I put this? Um the the Russians control our national and local elections and my school board uh, voted for this because the Russians were involved in the the West West Dog Flea, Pennsylvania school board election. It's just it's insanity. But that's floating around in the atmosphere as well. I guess, the only thing we can do, and there have been some people who've been good at that, is um, if you find uh, if you find somebody who's on the receiving end of that, I think it'd be helpful if people weighed in and uh, called up called people out on it because uh, you know we. In order for us to have um, a conversation that helps inform people, we have to have an environment that allows people to do kind of what we started the show with, where when you look at all those people who signed that memo um, that are supposed to be what they are, and when you've actually seen, you know, how, how dare you challenge these people? How dare you object to them? How, how dare you mention that it's, it's a mistake of a second year Air Force cadet to think that you could give the Ukrainians A-10s. You know, you're making excuses for Russia. You're making the enemy comfortable and happy. Well, first of all, Russia is not our enemy right now. We haven't declared war. Um, we need to have an environment where we can objectively challenge these bad ideas because these important people with big microphones, uh, if they are advising and shaping discussions for the people that have levers of power, we're going to find people doing things that are stupid. And goodness knows, uh, a lot of stupid things have been said behind podiums that have an American flag on it the last 20 years, 
we should be humble and very cautious how much we defer to people who think that they have a right to speak and say things without challenge. So I can only have one response to that, which is get out of my brain. Uh, I just, <laughs> I could not agree with you more. The analysis of that analysis of that was just, just spot on. That's why I saved it as my last question for you. I knew you would hit that one out of the park. It's why I read you. Um, uh, everyone uh, just reads out, you know, subscribe to a Substack page and, um, Go to go to at Commander Salamander or at CDR Salamander on on Twitter. Um, listen to Mid Rats. He's he's a wealth of knowledge and he's entertaining the boot. Sal, thank you for joining us. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. It is always good to talk with you, and we have to do this more often. Bill, I absolutely agree. It's it's, it's been a pleasure and a real fast hour or so. And uh, I thank you very much for the opportunity. And, and goodness knows there's enough going on in the world. We'll have no problem filling up more time in the future. You know, no, we, we sure won't. I mean, my wish, I'll be honest with you, is for peace to break out so I could go skiing and kayaking and hunting and hiking and camping and ride my motorcycles and, you know, just disappear from this world. But it's sad that this won't happen. I, not, I wish nothing more than for that to happen. The world is needy. Thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Sal. Have a great day. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. If you're on YouTube, smash that like button, as the kids say. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.